is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 216, Greg McHale piloting the Wild Yukon, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Hey folks, welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. This is going to be a really cool show. We have somebody who is a wilderness adventure flyer. He uses his skills as an aviator to reach really remote areas in untapped parts of the world. Uh, In his show, Greg McHale's Wild Yukon, he takes us to these hidden corners of Canada's untamed Yukon to pursue adventure, big game, and challenges. Today, Greg and I are going to discuss how he uses various modes of aviation transportation to make his adventure come alive. You know, while flying in the bush, Greg actually crashed his Super Cub. In this YouTube video, he discusses lessons learned from that life-threatening incident. We're going to talk about that later, but first, a few words from our sponsor. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. Let's do the pre-flight. Well, thanks, Larry. The uh, next thing we have is news and announcements before we get started. First of all, don't forget, July 13th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., we are starting the premiere of live from Sun and Fun, Sun and Fun Radio, and that's going to be on liveatc.net slash SNF from 10 to 2. You can listen to it live. You might do some live streaming on the uh, YouTube or on the Facebook page, so don't forget to also look for the Facebook page there too. Uh, also tonight uh, we have uh, Maddie he, who has f- actually got their instrument rating, and uh, congratulations to Maddie. So let's get on with the show now that we've done the news and announcements tonight. With us joining us is our co-host, and uh, a lot of the co-hosts had a lot of things to do, especially flying wise t- wise tonight. But joining me tonight is Russ Russ Wilsleski. Hey man, welcome. Man, Carl, it is great to be here again. Uh, it has been a wet couple of weeks here in Oklahoma. Lots of rain every day. I know you've seen stories about the flooding of the Mississippi River and lots of other states. But today, beautiful, 80 degrees, sunny, finally. Yeah, this is cool, man. You guys have been really been flooded a lot, and I'm glad you're safe. I mean, that uh, it really has been an, a, a rough patch of weather. But you guys, guys, you get really bad weather all the time, every year. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, it's not that bad. <laughs> no, no th- this has been an exceptional year here in the uh, central uh, plains of the U.S., really. Yeah, I, I tell you, I've been watching the news, man. I've been thinking about you every day. Uh, we've been getting quite a bit of rain, but nothing like you folks, that's for sure, here in sunny Florida. Now entering cruise flight. Well, going from sunny Florida to the rainstorms in Oklahoma, we are going to head up north uh, to actually up in Canada near the wild Yukon. Up in the Yukon is Greg McHale. Hey, Greg, welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, Carl. Thanks a lot. And Russ, it's great to be here. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, and what's really neat is that um, you truly do use uh, your aircraft as a tool. So, but but first, before we start about talking about flying, you have this really cool YouTube channel out there and website. So, it's called uh, Greg's uh, Wild Yukon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the um, the YouTube channel itself is uh, is kind of a 
you know, it's, I use it as a platform to to kind of educate people on on the kind of the things that I'm doing up here in the Yukon, and which is basically and mostly hunting, adventure hunting based. Um, I have a television show, Greg McHale's Wild Yukon, on the Sportsman Channel, and it's you know very obviously heavily uh, hunted, hunting based, and kind of just this what I do up here up here on a daily basis, and aviation is part of my program, so. Yeah, it's just trying to educate the viewer and kind of provide some value that, you know, maybe is uh, not easily come by out there. What's really cool about you joining us today is that, uh, you know, the primary focus of your show is not the aviation, but I would have to say, um, I always look for all those aviation shots in there and, and I'm always looking for the airplanes and you really have some really cool and really great video that you've done of all the flying that you do. It's, it's awesome. Ah, thanks. I appreciate that, Carl. Yeah. So as, as far as aviation is concerned, um, I know being from Canada and uh, up where you are, and we're going to talk a little bit about where you are in, in the region because uh, I think there's some people that don't know exactly where you're located. Um, it really is an, an important tool similar to in Alaska where many people need that smaller aircraft to get to remote parts of the Yukon because they couldn't get there otherwise. Yeah, well, the Yukon is, it's a big place and it's its remote and like we literally have kind of four major, what I guess we would call highways, um, which don't stretch beyond two lanes. But um, so the access to this territory that we have is very limited. So from my perspective and where if I'm trying to get out in remote areas, the obviously aviation is the only way to, um, the only way to get there beyond, you know, human power. So if you want to get back and removed, which, you know, it's all relative to where you live. But if, uh, for me, if I really want to get out, get out there an aircraft is is mandatory uh mandatory uh piece of equipment is is that how you got into aviation was it for utility or was it for fun no it was it was absolutely utility um the one of the things i guess growing up i grew up in ontario so which is six thousand kilometers from here um so about as far removed from the wilderness and and the yukon as you can get in our own country um and I, my, I did grow up with, you know, aviation, not in my family, but um, not in my immediate family, but certainly my, my parent or my father had an interest in it, never got to fly him himself. Um, and so he, or he never pursued that himself, but he did uh, offer it to me as a, as a, as a young, you know, as a teenager, I think I was 15 when he asked if I was interested in, in flying. And I, I went down the, you know, the road of, you know, ground school and a few hours in the plane, but ultimately, you know, it was just too cost costly in order for me to be able to to really be able to pursue it at that age in in the with the family's income. So um, it wasn't until you know, later when I was able to you know afford uh, to have an airplane to to purchase one that I that I got into it. But it was strictly for utility reason, really, uh, because you know a lot of the things that I do. Um, there's got to be, you know, there's got to be a good reason for it. And certainly in hunting and in the Yukon, there's no better reason to have uh, your pilot's license and, and an aircraft than if, if you want to, if you want to get back and get after it in the mountains. So what exactly, well, give us an example. I know getting from point A to point B, is there anything else you use the aircraft for besides uh, moving people and equipment? Yeah, I know scouting different locations and different areas. It's, you know, we don't have, you know, an amazing, um, you know, Google Earth here that that covers the (laughs) Yukon, say, like, there's, you know, we have these chunks that we have. The Yukon is covered by Google Earth, but if you really start to dig into it, uh, a lot of areas are just, you know, you can't really, can't really just discern what's the terrain really looks like and um, i use the the aircraft for um you know from scouting to for game uh, and scouting the potential areas that that those game may live in 
So that's that's really the utility, obviously beyond the moving and transporting the team and and myself into the backcountry. So the team you're talking about, I'm assuming when you looked at this as a utility, trying to decide what aircraft to get, you also had to think about the the load factor. You know how many people you need to get from point A to point B. Um, for instance, your first airplane. What was it, and what? Why did you choose that aircraft? So the my first aircraft is is the PA eighteen, the Super Cub, um, and the Super Cub is you know one of those those aircraft in the north that is so utilitarian, and it just provides. You know, it provides the pilot with an ability to get intimate, not only with the aircraft, but with the terrain. Um, you know, it flies slow. Uh, you can land it, you know, almost anywhere. And it has high power to, you know, to weight ratio to get you out of out of tight spots as well. Um, you know, I run a, run a super cub with a 35 inch tires. So, you know, you have the ability to suck up terrain that, uh, on a platform that, you know, other aircraft just can't perform in that, in that kind of environment. Now, the limitations of that are obviously the, the load that you can, that you can carry. It's a two place aircraft. So m- many people, you know, are familiar with the J3 as a training aircraft, certainly, Back in the back in the day, um, you know, high wing with uh, you know tail dragger, uh, just a really great performing um, aircraft under these conditions, landing on tops of mountains, landing on gravel bars, just getting in and I call it like getting down and dirty with the <laughs> with the terrain. And this kind of that plane is is was just built for that. And it uh, it still to this day is one of the best, you know, certified, you know, backcountry stole aircraft in the world. So that was my first plane. Um, obviously, it was a little bit more, a little bit more cost uh, cost effective for for a fellow's first airplane. In that, you know, the 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 cost of the plane is although they're not cheap, but at the same time they're not uh, they're not expensive, and. You know the they don't uh, you know you're burning eight gallons of fuel an hour, which is uh, pretty nice when you're when you're on a budget. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. The uh, so is that so that was your first airplane. Was it, how about after that? Did you purchase other airplanes, or is that still the one you're flying? Well, that's. That's still the one I'm flying, but I also have uh, a one a Cessna 185, um, and I keep the 185 on floats. And that is more of the, the heavy hauler. So when I talk about the team, there's usually myself and two teammates, uh, Carl and Dave. And they're, they both run video cameras and they're just great buddies. And we've been hunting together for and videoing together for a number of years now. So the, it's usually the three of us heading into the backcountry. And that plane provides the, you know, it's just a great, it's a great workhorse in the mountains and it's got got great power to get in and out of out of you know relatively tight lakes, you know say three thousand foot lakes. We can uh, we can pull that that in and out of without any any real issues. So it's just a it's a you know it's a really good aircraft and and I I enjoy flying it as well. But it's certainly faster and can get us get us to where we need to go quickly in comparison to the Super Cub. Is that a, is that on floats? Is it an amphibious? I forgot to look on the on the picture there. Yeah, it's not floats. It's not amphib. It's it's straight floats. Cool. And then uh, one of the things I thought was really cool, okay, so you use that for getting back and forth, and I love the fact that you use uh, just for spotting with the other aircraft. But you, I saw in one of the videos you actually flew a powered parachute. I thought that was way cool. What? Why do you – and it kind of seemed out of place for me, so, so clue me in. Why would you use a powered parachute out there? Is that just part of the adventure? Yeah, as much as anything, it's part of the adventure. Now that that um, the powered paraglider is is it's a really neat uh, neat machine. It's funny because you know not normally you don't find people that go from uh, aircraft having their you know a pilot of of an aircraft and then going backwards and putting a putting a 
paragliding wing over top of them and uh, you know a lawnmower on their back. But um, but it's just such an intimate way to fly. You know, wind in your face. You're only going you know 25 miles an hour, and it's on a calm on a calm day. It's just. It's just really freedom of flight. And I find that the the less you have in front of you and, and around you, you know, you can just, there's no limitations as far as looking. And it's not intrusive with, very intrusive with like say animals um if you're if you're using it as a scouting tool but it's it's just it's just pleasure for for the most part um because it obviously it has its limitations as to where you can how far you can go and where you can take it and the conditions that you can take it in sounds like you've been bit by the bug just like russ and i have yeah, I think that I think that when I know it goes, it's it's like most of us, right? Once we once you start flying and you get that, you know, you get that freedom. Um, it's pretty tough to go backwards. Yeah, it sure is. Um, but Russ, you had a question. Oh yeah, I do. But for, I want to first talk about this uh, powered uh, paraglider. Yeah, those things are amazing. There's <laughs> there's a there's actually a group nearby here that um, it, they actually use the uh, playground at my daughter's school on the weekends as their uh, whatever launch area, runway, whatever you call it. But uh, yeah, I imagine they don't get a whole lot of days to do that out here in Oklahoma because it's usually pretty windy all the time. But man, any calm day there out there flying around, we've gone a couple times. I watched them. That is something that I really, really want to do sometime. So I'll be looking for any uh, any links or anything you have <laughs> later. But uh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, but actually, I did really want to talk about um, just it's kind of a flight planning question, really. I mean, you know, down here in most of the U.S. anyway. I mean, you know, there's airports all over the place. Uh, you can get fuel anywhere. Uh, fuel price is one of the primary planning considerations. You stop at airport B or C or whatever, because which has cheaper gas, <laughs> you know, uh, range of the airplane is not really a problem. You know, you, within the range of any normal size airplane, you could have hundred airports, you know? So, uh, I just kind of wonder if you could talk a little bit about, how you do flight planning up there in the Yukon where you don't have an airport every five miles, you know, some may or may not have fuel, you know, you're landing on these gravel bars or whatever you're doing. And the whole thing, you know, fuel and range and planning. And if you could just talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah. The, that's probably one of the biggest, um, biggest factors when you're when you're I shouldn't just fuel but obviously weather is you know these things when you're up here I think that are just they're just exact you know just exaggerated by like I hear you talk about a hundred you know airports where you can get fuel around when you when you take off and like that's you know that's just unheard of like this, that is so far removed from my world um, because I'm just when I plan and head up, you know, cause I live in Southern Yukon. And so pretty much wherever I'm going is, is traveling North. Um, so when I plan to go to these remote places, I have to, you know, try to figure out where I can land, say the 185, um, where I can access a place that I can then land the super cub to grab fuel that I had to drop off there in the 185. Um, cause some of the places that I go, you know, you, I go with the 185 and you just can't re you can't return, um, on a, on a tank of, of fuel. Right. So, um, obviously uh, lots of times I'm carrying fuel in the aircraft with me so that when I land, I can then, you know, get out, whether it's on a remote lake and I'm flying the 185, I can get out and, you know, put fuel into the, into the, the wings and, and keep going. So, um, when I yeah, when I'm scouting, there's lots of times that I am carrying carrying fuel with me on board just so that I can return or get back to a a town, one of the you know the half a dozen towns that we have in the Yukon. Um, so it's it's certainly a big consideration, and that's where you know the Google Earth really comes into play and in trying to figure out where these lakes are and where you can find places that you could potentially land uh, an aircraft on water and on on land so yeah it's it's a juggle that's for sure well so i guess i got a follow-on question there because because <laughs> that 
that that's just amazing in itself. But how about weather sources? I mean, if there's no airports, there's no weather reporting. Uh, how do you? We have, I guess, we're spoiled, <laughs> right, down here in a lot of ways, where everybody's got uh, weather reporting. You know, we've got ADSB, we've got onboard weather. You know, we've got all this stuff. How do you deal with uh, with changes in weather and finding out what the forecasts are going to be and all that kind of thing? Yeah, we have that. You know, we have about uh, yeah, really a half a dozen places that you can get decent weather forecasting. Um, but some of the places that I'm flying to could be 200, you know, 200 miles or you know, 100 to 200 miles away from the nearest weather reporting station. So, and then when you're in the mountains, it's a completely different world anyways, because you could be 20 miles away from that weather station and have completely different weather. So it's, it's a lot of, you know, often it's a lot of, you know, luck. And sometimes it's, you know, you have to fly around weather and it's dodging storms and going through passes and just trying to, trying to pick your way to some of, some of these locations. And then you have to do it with the, the additional, issues of fuel consumption you know do you do you deviate to go around a storm and then have to you know fly through some different passes and take a different route and now you've just added you know 40 50 miles onto your onto your trip and now you've consumed another three quarters of an hour of fuel and now you don't have the ability to be able to say check out the area for as long as you want to to find that landing strip so you can put more fuel into the plane. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of challenges, but um, I've never flown in in kind of your world where like these are just kind of normal operating procedures for me up here is just, it's just part of part of aviation in the North. Um, I, I honestly don't know aviation in a place where I have a hundred airports to choose from. I like how you, how you put that in our world and, and it is, is amazing how, how different, you know, flying you know, just around different parts of the world are from what many of us are used to. And imagine if we talk to, you know, missionary pilots in Africa or, or anything like that, it would be a lot of the same type of considerations. I mean, I'll, I'll go on a flight and, you know, I'll, I'll plan to have, you know, 45 minute reserve or now reserve your plan and to have you know, enough to make it there and back and deviate for weather and everything else. So uh, it's, it's just a whole different set of planning considerations. Have you ever been stuck anywhere uh, where, I, I don't know, you didn't have enough fuel to get back or can you tell us about any, any interesting situations you might've had like that? Yeah, I've had, um, I've had a, I don't know if I would consider it a close call, but you know, when you get you know, when you're in those situations, and I think that anyone that spent any time in, in an airplane as a pilot that, the, you know, where the hair stands up in the back of your neck and you go, the, this, the comfort zone is, is, <laughs> is no longer there. Um, one of, I was, I, I was hunting with, um, with a friend and my father, and this was prior to, I didn't have a satellite phone or um, in reach. And so one of the things about bush flying is when you leave somebody behind um, and you don't have a way to communicate with them and they're in a remote, you know, hundreds of miles from anywhere. And it's, it's a really, it's a really different feeling when that aircraft flies away and you're there by yourself and there's, there's no one coming and the only person that knows kind of relatively where you are is that person that just flew away in the airplane. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting feeling. So, um, what, what had happened in this situation was I had left my dad and my friend at a lake and I was actually heading back to get more fuel so that I would be able to do, um, to shuttle, shuttle some, some moose out out of the bush so and i was fairly i was fairly i was i wasn't low on fuel but i was at a point where you know i was going to get to where i needed to go and and then be able to to resupply so i fly there and i'm like 15 miles from the lake that i want to land on and this is one of those mornings that 
the the fog settles right in on the water now beautiful blue skies and but the fog uh, had settled in on the on the lake so there was no way that i could see the lake to land on it um so i circled around for you know 15 minutes or so trying to find a, a hole that i could see the water and i couldn't so i went back and i was starting to run low low on fuel so I landed on a on a lake that was you know 15 miles away, and I figured okay I'll just wait for the weather to to warm up and it'll burn off. So um, over the course of of the day, I landed and took off three different times to try to get into into this lake. So now, what you know where I left my father and my my buddy, you know it's just beautiful blue sky. And these guys are expecting me back in, you know, two hours time. Now it's eight hours later and I've, you know, went up and down three times and now I'm low on fuel because I'm having the added, you know, there's that, that pressure to get back to the guys because they know that they're, if, if you don't get back to them, they are your, you know, they are your safety net for, for lack of a better better term because if if things go bad eventually they're going to you know they're going to be freaking out right i shouldn't say they're your safety net you are theirs and um so yeah i just up and down a few times and i'm running low on fuel and i have and i know that i have literally comfort i shouldn't say comfortably because i'm already in the uncomfortable zone um i have probably one more takeoff and landing um and then I'm, I can't do it again. And then it would be, you know, a, a huge hike out of, out of the mountains to try to go and get fuel, five gallons of fuel somewhere. And then, you know, and we're talking, when I say huge, I mean like days. And, and yeah, so those are the kind of things that, that I dealt with. And luckily, I waited and there was a pilot um, flying over and I was on my radio and I was able to communicate with him and ask him if the lake had opened up yet. And he said that uh, he said that it had. So I was able to take off and land on that lake. But had that, you know, had that guy not been there, I wouldn't have known. And it would have been one of those, you know, hair on the back of the neck situations. But, yeah. So are, are you usually prepared i mean, I, I assume the answer is yes uh prepared if you have to hike out i mean i'm assuming you're packing all kinds of survival equipment obviously but you said it might be a several days hike uh what that that's beyond the i think the normal level of uh, survival equipment that you know most of us carry down here unless of course you're doing a lot of backcountry idaho type flying but uh so is that i assume that's always in your mind as a possibility Oh yeah. Um, so like for myself, I, I come from a professional, uh, multi-sport background. So I raced professionally as an adventure racer and these, that sport is predicated on like endurance athletics over long distances, map and compass navigation in remote areas. So like, I know that with what I have in my, in my plane, as long as I, you know, have enough food that I can probably cover a hundred miles and in a couple days almost anywhere in the Yukon and I'd have I have enough food to to be able to do that as long as you know you're physically you know if something happens you that it can get done so um so yeah that's I know that there really isn't any place in the Yukon that I that I don't think that I can hike out of with with enough time um so that's a that's a a good feeling to to have but that's just because because of the racing that i've done um so yeah it's <laughs> it's a little bit different i guess how does that all change uh, and your business and such does it change uh, for the winter uh, survival concern considerations and cold temperatures and all and i guess what's the kind of the coldest you've uh, ever you know, been landed somewhere at um yeah probably I don't really do a whole lot of flying beyond minus 25. Um, 
it's just you know especially if you're flying in a in a super cub it's not a warm aircraft <laughs> in the summertime let alone right, right. let alone minus you know 25 out there and you know when i've got somebody in the back seat at those temperatures it's not very pleasant so just that's that's typically the coldest that i fly in and yeah you just have to pack more more gear just more more safety net in case something does go you know does go wrong right one of you know you talk about the safety net there's one of the things i keep thinking about is the fact that how do you get the training to do this i know you said you're into the sports but say there's somebody who's in aviation that is looking to do that to do more of that uh, adventure travel like you're doing where where do you think they should go in other words you learn this on your own but someone just getting started is what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about going out into just starting out in bush flying um i i don't know that certainly that the the level of uh, activity or the, the that I do is something that is necessary but you absolutely have to be you have to have the mindset that number one that if something goes wrong that you will be able to stay calm and figure out your situation you don't need the physical ability that I have because you'll probably just stay with your aircraft uh, anyways but often if if this does go you know does go wrong and you're in remote places it's the mind that goes first it's it's the mind that put people in trouble because you start to get scared and make poor decisions so backcountry aviation for me up here is the the best thing to do would be to go out and spend time in the wilderness alone prior to you know to to going and, and flying in these kind of areas because if it uh, if it goes if something happens and it doesn't even have to be a you know a, a crash if just you know your battery dies and you can't get your airplane started again um, whatever it is if if these kind of things happen it's typically the person that is hard on hard on themselves because they don't know how to deal with the solitude, the loneliness, the temperatures, the, you know, just the wildness of these places. So that would be my best recommendation is, you know, put your, just like anything else, put yourself in difficult situations in training so that when it comes time that you actually need that, that knowledge, you already have it and you know what to do. There's a reason why we learn to, you know, learn stalls and or spins in in training because if it happens so that you know that it's you know how to deal with it now people can go their whole career and never never do another you know another one after that uh which i you know obviously we wouldn't recommend but you know you're you're certainly not you know learning these things for no reason and that's what i think is almost i my whole philosophy is put your, put myself in difficult situations so that I know how to react when things go bad. Because when you're in the backcountry, in the wilderness, things can go bad. <laughs> and it's, you, you just don't, you know, fly over to the next farmer's field and land in it. And, you know, then hike over the fence and get on the highway and hitchhike home. Um, up here, consequences are, are real. And if you if something does go wrong that you have to land somewhere, that's that's the, the first thing. Now you have to survive. And if you don't get out there and learn those skills, when the time comes, you're not going to have them. And then things are uh, things are going to go south on you real quick. To add to somebody who's thinking about actually doing the flying in that area. Knowing, you know, how to survive on the ground is important, but also when you were learning to fly, a huge part of what you were doing is learning how to fly in the bush. And a lot of folks, you know, in the lower 48 don't really get that type of training. I'm assuming that, that your instructor probably went over a lot of things that we probably would never see in our training here in the lower 48. 
good example. Yeah. Like an example of that would be just just going just like what you talked about and, and planning and stuff like that. So that that's the kind of thing that I think that we as people in the lower forty eight or anybody who's thinking about going to the bush, wherever in, in Idaho, et cetera, like you mentioned, Russ, really needs to get out there and train. And I loved what you talked about. Really, what you're talking about is proficiency in your procedures and the emergencies, and also in abnormal procedures where you know stall spins things like that that we can do in the airplane and also get that training uh, to survive you know on the ground and understanding communication etc i know you know when i went through survival training at the airline it was probably nowhere near uh, what what you've learned from all your years of experience going up there um yeah you know i think that it's really interesting um the aviation industry in in to to answer that question about the things that i may have learned that are different from what you guys learned down there and um the the one thing about the aviation industry is that you know the federal regulation is you must cover these certain things and you know you put in your x amount of hours and then you can move on and then you know you pass the test at the at the at the level that is required. And I think that, um, that I didn't receive a lot of really extra, extra attention to these different procedures that are applicable only to say a place like the Yukon, because the, the requirements are to try to, you know, as to try to get your license and they have to, the instructors have to really focus on those particular items that they have to teach and that the that the student has to be proficient at now after i was i i had my license that's when i really started to to talk to other um other pilots and bush pilots and even my instructor who had you know a lot of um a, a lot of bush flying experience and that's when i you know really started to to find out the the nuances of bush flying and um, and started to to kind of push push your push your realm of the mountains and it's just a different kind of um, it's just a different level of flying I believe than you know just what you what you learn in your basic training right and the only way to really learn it is to to get out in the mountains and feel the you know feel the wind coming over the ridge and and you know understanding the airplane intimately in these different conditions where you know you're really being beat up by by the mountains in a lot of ways and how the wind travels through those mountains so um yeah there's i you know i'm sure that there's lots of lots of instructors out there that really do teach that but i think the norm is more is more the you know just get through the training and then you know put the onus on the on the new pilot to to figure out the you know the real the nuances of bush flying and and do it gradually you know not to you know push yourself but not too too far because that's when that's when things happen and uh get get ourselves in trouble (laughs) that's for sure as a matter of fact speaking of that um i know there's there was a video that we (laughs) we looked at we were talking about beforehand that really i think was a great lesson And, and something i really appreciate that you did is you talked about uh, an, an instance where things didn't work out quite so well and uh, actually wound up crashing your Super Cub. So if you could, if you don't mind, if it's not too stressful for you, do you, do you mind going over that, like what, what happened and, and maybe even what you learned from that? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I think that uh, it's it, – I've gotten you know a lot of feedback on that video, and my I felt that – and almost immediately after it happened, I, I felt that this was this was a moment that I needed a story that I needed to tell because I wish that I had um, yeah, may, maybe I wish that I had seen this video, um, but not not necessarily that it would have made the difference. I don't know, but the basically what happened was. Um, yeah, I was doing, I was doing what I do. Uh, I was heavily loaded with fuel on on the Super Cub. Um, I know that I wasn't. I know that I wasn't overgrossed, but I know that I was right at that. You know, right at that limit. Um, 
And what I was doing is I was trying to to land in a remote uh, airstrip. That airstrip was about, uh, I think, on the on the long end would have been about 700 feet long, um, and it was exactly what I what I was looking for. Is it was beside a you know beside a lake, um, and I was using that was the plan was to use that strip as a as a base to do some scouting. Um, and check out new country. So what abnormally warm days in the Yukon, uh, 20, 20 to 20, I guess about 25 degrees that day, which is Celsius, which uh, that's probably, I don't know, closer, close to 80, I believe. I'm not 100% sure. But um, yeah, an abnormally warm day in the Yukon. I do all of you know, the majority of my flying in colder temperatures. And as we, as we know, the cooler the temperatures, the better the aircraft performs. So I'm, I've got two, you know, two negatives right there, heavily loaded and a a hot day and certainly a hot day for my aviation experience. Um, You know, somebody like yourself living in Florida, you might go, that's a no-brainer, uh, Greg, because it's just like it's it's hot, and you may not consider that hot, but not at all. <laughs> yeah, um, so I can't quite I can't quite imagine what my aircraft would how it would perform in the temperatures that you're used to flying in, but certainly there was a, a, a noticeable difference to me because all of my aviation is done at these high performance temperatures, really. And so what I did was I flew the strip uh, back and forth probably three times, checked it out, um, you know, f- could see exactly which way the wind was coming. Uh, it, was a, it was a very light breeze, but because of the lake, I could tell exactly which way the wind was coming. So I set up into wind. Um, the strip had six, I think it was six to 10, 12 inches of of grass. Um, now that's now I know that now because I I, I had the ability to walk it. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I didn't walk it prior to uh, under under better circumstances. But so parts of the parts of the strip and what I also didn't know was that um, the strip was it had a camber from right to the left and at the the first third of it, there was water underneath the grass, um, just making it making it slippery. There was a stream that was kind of spread out on on the strip in the first third of of the the landing portion that I was set up for. So my intent was to go kind of wheels down and kind of get a feel for it and see how it felt and and kind of make a make a decision um as to whether i was going to you know completely cut throttle and and be be committed or you know just kind of suss it out and what happened was i set up for the landing everything was perfect i put wheels down and in that grass and the water that was underneath it because it cambered from right to left i started to drift down toward the low side of, of the strip and on the end on the sides of this strip and it, when I say strip I'm talking about you know I don't know half of the half of a lane of highway right so whatever that is 12 feet pretty um, pretty narrow yeah f- fairly narrow but the you know the willow on the side was only maybe I don't know maybe three and a half feet high so you know obviously the wings are going to clear it um, and there's, you know, shouldn't be any, any issues as long as you stay in the middle of it. So this is a, this, so this is where it kind of started to go, to go awry on me. I started to, to slide kind of down the camber and not, not a lot of camber, but enough. Um, and I started to slide to the lower end and I felt right away that, okay, this isn't where I want to be. So I threw the, you know, poured the salve to it and, and th- through the throttle and um it was just there was just that microsecond of hesitation 
and that was you know that was that was enough that I started I was flying but I was drifting to the left over top of the willow now and now I have my left wheel in the tops of the willow and I'm you know I'm fully committed it only takes about you know a few seconds to be to be off the end of this strip so now I'm fully committed and I'm not and I'm kind of bushes in the wheels and I'm flying and I'm used to flying you know very slow so this is the I feel that I'm I'm right on the edge of the the controllability of of any major you know significant movement you know left or right either way I'm kind of committed to going straight ahead because of the speed that I'm flying so as I'm as I'm flying I'm off the end of the strip now and there's there's nowhere to land and the there's a few pine trees coming at me and what I and there's there's not a lot of pine trees and there's a, a lake down to my left so the camber in the the camber in the strip is right to left. There's a lake to my left, and I I want to obviously avoid hitting this tree um, with my with my wing. So I'm really riding the fine line of stalling the aircraft and and putting it nose into the ground. And those are the ones you just don't walk away from. So and I know where I know where that stall point is on on this on this Cubs, and I'm right on the edge of it. And I I know that I cannot. You know, I can't kick over any more rudder, and I can't, and I just can't put any more aileron into it. And um, I just picked the wing up enough that I think I'm going to clear the top of this tree. And this tree, like literally the top foot of it, hits the strut, and that's just enough to to slow me down um, even more. And now I'm descending, and I'm descending toward toward the lake, and I still think I. I may have a shot of this if I can just get over on onto the lake and get into ground effect and I may be able to fly out of here but I I just didn't have enough enough speed to to get there and I ended up putting it in the rhubarb right on the edge of uh, edge of the lake and fortunately I was able to you know to walk away from it um yeah, and that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of how it all played out. Well, I I don't know, but I, I'm I'm a little tense after hearing that whole thing. So let's uh, take a deep breath here and uh, kind of rewind a little bit and and say to ourselves, "Gosh, what what can we learn from this?" And also, thank God it it turned out so well. Maybe being at such a slow speed helped a little bit in the survivability. Plus uh, the fact they are pretty tough these airplanes. But gosh. Um, it really, you know, I'm assuming that, uh, you didn't, weren't able to fly the plane anywhere after that. No, the, uh, the plane was definitely not flying anywhere. Um, as, as it came to, came to its parking position, um, it was wingtip in the mud. And so the, the right wing was, um, you know, the, the first, I don't know, four feet of, uh, of the wing were completely destroyed and so was the tail so yeah there was uh there was no way you're duct taping that baby together and flying out well a well b you couldn't do it but there was no there was no other way to to nowhere to go yeah (laughs) she's a helicopter ride uh ride for the super cub to get it out of there wow so what did you do i mean uh before we go into maybe lessons learned how did you how were you able to get out of there um, well, I mean, it was the the right wing dug into dug into the into the dirt or into the mud, and the so I was the door flew open, so I was you know looking out at the out at the ground, and you know I just stepped out and stepped out off the plane. Like it was it was one of those moments where you go, oh, come on, that didn't <laughs> just happen. Well. Um, but you know I've. And that's it's the beautiful thing about these that aircraft in particular is like you said they are strong, but um, the the speed at which I I did this I've literally fallen off my mountain bike harder. Um, uh-huh. Now that's you know I, I was probably in the ball in somewhere in that twenty mile an hour range, 
so I mean, we're talking super slow, super slow incident, and all the just because these planes can go can land at that speed. So were you able to? Uh, how about calling for help? How did you uh, get somebody to come out and help you? Yeah, so I uh, I have actually I have uh, it's uh, called the Ripcord Rescue Travel Insurance. And those guys are pretty amazing. So just like it's an in-reach, in-reach call. And they, uh, you know, those guys, uh, I was able to, I was able to make a number of calls with the in-reach. But um, yeah, the ripcord, I, I would absolutely recommend that, you know, that that's that kind of rescue insurance is certainly invaluable. Absolutely here. And, um, and it, they just take take care of things for you. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't too long before you know a helicopter was was called in and I was I was out of there. So w- looking back at this, um, I know you had some time to reflect and you talk a little bit about it on the video. What uh, what lessons do you think you learned and maybe even want to pass along to some of our listeners? Well, I mean. Yeah, lessons learned. There's there's a number of them for sure. Um, I guess it's just being, just practicing, being proficient, putting yourself, like I said earlier, put yourself in those difficult situations. So, you know, what I what I should have done is I should have been flying the airplane, fully loaded with the you know the at gross weight on the hottest days of the year, and try to figure out the you know how it how it performs and i failed like i absolutely did not do the work that i needed to do and that's the thing that if i can stress to to people to is to if you're you know you're flying planes and you you need to fly under the conditions that you may possibly want to fly in and I'm not saying you should, uh, you know, you should go and fly into a thunderstorm um, because you wouldn't do that anyways. But it's, it's, these are the kind of things that I do all the time. And um, it was kind of this, you know, this storm of, of three things that, uh, that kind of culminated in this accident. And I just, I failed. And I'm lucky that I walked away from it. You know, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, you've been so transparent with us and, and are able to share this with other people because it, it really, you know, as you were describing this, there's so many things in my mind that I was going through, and I'm sure many of the listeners as to, you know, what do you do next and how do we move forward with this and all the way through the point to where the aircraft stops. But looking back, I think uh, I think it's great that you, you admit this mistake. And I, I assume, you know, I know nothing about uh, – uh, what you do, like the the hunting and stuff like that, but I'm sure it's kind of the same as on your show. You must be very transparent when you make a mistake. You you let people know, hey, listen, this is what happened, and we move forward. And that's one thing that I I really appreciate about people like yourself is that you really are doing a service to us in the flying community by sharing this this story. And I'm I'm sure it's stressful every time you you talk about it, but uh, but I really appreciate you putting it forth, and um, and that's been absolutely wonderful hearing about that because of the fact that it it passes along knowledge plus you didn't get hurt i think that's a that's a big part of it yeah i mean it's it's not you know it's not easy i mean we all have egos and mine um mine is uh you know no different than than most people's but at the same time it's my my philosophy and my theory is that we're all going to make mistakes and those are those people that you know on television, and I have a you know the television show. But the reality is, is that nobody is perfect. And if you pretend that you're perfect, then it's you're just you're not doing anybody a service. So it's really it's authenticity. And the whole point of of making this, and even I had family members that that would say like, really, do you? Do you really want people to know that? And and the answer is just absolutely yes. Because if I can, if somebody can watch that video, and they can learn something that they can take away that helps them avoid what 
the mistake that I made and that mistake could be much more catastrophic than it was for me, then if I don't do that, then I'm doing a disservice to everybody because that's, you know, I've learned something and I had the ability to be able to to put it out to the world. And if, if I chose not to do that, uh, I just feel that that would be weak. Greg, we really appreciate that you feel that way because I, you know, Russ and I both have, have learned something from listening to you and uh, it's been just awesome. And uh, I tell you what, I don't know about you, Russ, but I one of the things I'm going to start doing is is going to head out and, and take a look at the Yukon. I've always thought that I was going to go up into the north and go out in the middle of the wilderness to the place called Yellowknife. I've always wanted to head up that way. and uh, But but from this situation, it sounds like that's, that's a big city, and uh, that would be, for me, a big adventure going there. And to learn from somebody like yourself, like Greg here, uh, I think that's been it, – it's actually been an honor to be able to have someone like yourself on to to pass forward this knowledge and this is what we need we need more people like yourself and and like russ who also passes along knowledge uh, it's been terrific so russ i i tell you is there anything else you have i mean i i know you this has been are, are you as as is your shoulders as stiff as mine after hearing that story <laughs> <laughs> they were it was a little tense there for a while it's a good story and i'm gonna i i know you we've gotten the show notes the uh, link to the video where he uh, tells that and some more details i haven't actually seen it yet so i'll probably do that right after words and I'll relive it all again, I guess. <laughs> but uh, no, great, great story. Great. All this information, Greg, thank you very much. Um, I mean, you know, for those of us you know, down here who live with, you know, with all these hundreds of airports around flying up where you do is, is just this, you know, this real adventure, this, you know, dream that I think a lot of us have. I mean, you know, whether it's in Alaska or over in the Yukon or, or even just in some of the Northern U uh, S states, uh, it's just, just amazing to hear everything you have to do and think about and plan for. And it, one of these days I'll get up there. I will. And I know a lot of, uh, a lot of our listeners probably think exactly the same way. Well, we look forward to uh, hosting you. If you, if you uh, decide to make the, make the long journey North. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks guys. You know, the, the Yukon really is a, is a beautiful place. And I would highly recommend if uh, if you're an aviator or if you're just a lover of you know wild places and fresh air, then come on up and visit us. Well, we appreciate that, Greg. Hey, Greg, where where can people find you? Say on the internet. Yeah, we um, so basically everything is Greg McHale's Wild Yukon, um, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So the YouTube channel is we're trying to provide, uh, and mountain hunting is really my thing uh, with obviously the aviation and athletics and all of these, this kind of adventure style um, pursuit. And so, yeah, the YouTube channel is trying to help educate uh, mountain hunting in, in a lot of ways, but we've have some, I think there's some pretty good videos that you know, kind of capture what the Yukon is about and the kind of things that we do up here. So, yeah, those are our three major platforms, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, yeah, I'd really, really appreciate, you know, maybe maybe check it out and, um, and see what, uh, leave me some comments. And I'm always, you know, if, if you do, if your viewership does take a look at this video um, and they have some, you know, constructive criticism or feedback that they would be able to, you know, to maybe help me uh, become a better pilot and what I should consider next time. And um, I'm all about learning and all about trying to get better just to be the best pilot that I can be, um, you know, whether it's, yeah, I, I, I'm really interested in people's people's feedback good bad or indifferent you know um there's lots to if people are telling you there's lots to learn from from everybody out there and some sometimes uh i can definitely uh, use the help <laughs> well greg i'm sure you'll hear some feedback and uh and again check out that website if you're listening right now just some some great information. Uh, also, uh, you know, if you're into the, the adventure sports and the hunting and all, that's uh, another place, avenue you can go, plus all the great shots from the airplane. You really want to check that out, especially on the, the YouTube channel. And uh, it really, the, the videography is terrific. Uh, the, like you said, you have a great team, Greg, and um, you also uh, are just a, you know, a wonderful person on there.
there and you're so transparent that's one thing that we really uh, love about you and, and enjoy watching uh, but if if anybody has questions obviously they can write into us stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com or just go out to uh, Greg's uh, it's uh, Greg McHale's Wild Yukon Greg McHale's Wild Yukon.com of course it'll be in the show notes you can just link to it in episode 216 Greg Russ, this has been awesome, man. I tell you, uh, it's been quite the adventure. And uh, can't wait to hear the comments on this. If you do have questions, of course, write us. And uh, don't forget to click on the video. I think that, you know, one of the things I loved about it is that just just the fact that it tells an incredible story, but also it helps you learn from that. And that's what's really important about aviation is sharing the love and also sharing the knowledge. Well, folks, I appreciate your listening this evening. Safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.